Hey. We've all heard about the climate crisis. Some people are taking action. While some people have their heads in the sand. Hurricane Maria slamming into the island and as- At least 25 wildfires are burning across California alone. There is no man-made climate change. I don't think science knows, actually. Where's the proof? That's where we come in. You're listening to House on Fire, a podcast about the climate crisis where we bring those leading the fight to you. We're two activists coming to you from Ground Zero, Miami, Florida, sharing the facts so you can become informed and engaged in this movement. And our show, House on Fire, is powered by the Clio Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to climate change education, awareness, and advocacy. I'm JP. And I'm Gabby. Welcome to House on Fire. You're listening to House on Fire. Today we're recording an episode because recently, Florida has been under national attention, but not for the crazy headlines you might usually expect. In the past few weeks, Florida has been looking at an array of anti-protest and free speech suppression actions, including legislation that works to quote-unquote combat public disorder. What's scary about this is that it criminalizes protesting and it provides law enforcement with enhanced authority to arrest organizers and protesters and activists. This type of policy is endangering and taking power away from organizers like me and JP. Recently, also, this type of legislation has been signed into law by Governor DeSantis. On top of that, there's been a second type of policy that's going through and that's been talked about recently. And it's a series of bills preempting cities, municipalities, and more from restricting certain types of fuel sources like fossil fuels. There are a lot of implications regarding this type of energy preemption, but one big impact is that if a city wanted to commit to achieving 100% renewable energy by some date, they wouldn't be able to do that. So to sum up, there is legislation to suppress our right to safely and peacefully protest, and there's also legislation that would hinder on our transition into a clean, equitable energy economy in Florida. So all this type of policy has been regarded as direct attacks on Floridians' rights to protest and to clean energy, which are both needed for a fair and sustainable future in Florida. And so for weeks, organizers here have been mobilizing relentlessly against these types of policies. But a Florida Senate and House at our state legislature has been relatively successful with these policies. So us Floridians are now experiencing these waves of anti-protest and anti-climate actions. And we're witnessing an attack on free speech, on democracy, on science, and really the very power that we hold as people. So clearly there's a lot for us to unpack here. So we're getting help today from one of Florida's loudest voices, a leading leading the fight against these action. Florida House Representative Anna Escamani. Representative Escamani is one of Florida's most progressive leaders, championing Florida's issues in environmental, climate, economic, and racial justice. At only 30 years old, she is the first Iranian-American elected to any public office in Florida, representing District 47 in Orange County. Also, my co-host JP will be joining this conversation with Representative Escamani, and he's going to be giving us the perspective from an organizer for climate and social justice in Florida. So let's get into it. Hi, Anna. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. And hey, JP. Hey, happy to be back. Awesome. So um, like we start pretty much every conversation we have with our guests on House on Fire, Anna, I want to ask you, what's your story and how did it bring you to the type of work that you do today? Well, I really appreciate 
the invitation and thank you for your leadership on such critical intersectional issues. Um, my introduction to civics and uh, public policy really just came as growing up in, in a working class neighborhood as a daughter of immigrants. My parents came from two different parts of Iran, but met in Orlando working at the same donut shop. And <laughs> I will say my connection to caring about Mama Earth, um, I think is really much rooted in my cultural identity because um, my my family um, celebrates some of the most ancient Persian holidays, which are very much rooted in spring, in rejuvenation, mm-hmm. in water. And, and because my family did not have a lot of money, the activities that we would do to spend time as a family were often going to the park or going to the beach, you know, things that didn't really have a ticket cost to them, but were still really memorable experiences. And we'd spend the whole day at the beach just playing in the sand and enjoying um, what this earth has. And growing up, you start realizing that these these really precious resources um, are not um, uh, being treated appropriately. And whether it's, you know, by development or or uh, polluters or the lack of regulation, and you just kind of get a, a, a deeper perspective on how the personal is political and how public policy impacts the future of this state, its economy, but also the health and well-being of its natural resources and the critters who rely on the natural resources. Mm-hmm. And so um, everything for me always goes back to my 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 roots as, uh, as growing up in, in Central Florida. And my mom actually did pass away when I was 13 years old. So my passion for uh, women's issues and access to healthcare and really looking at holistic policy approaches to solving problems also comes from my own lived experiences in navigating some really difficult situations, not always having safety nets there or the support there to, to get me through it. Yeah, and I really appreciate that story and it's really powerful. And it really boils down to how politics and, and policy boils down to, to the personal level, right? Um, a lot of our experiences and what gets taken up into law are really formative to us. And right now, one thing that I personally feel as both just a young person and an organizer is a lot of fear when we talk about, you know, the themes of legislation that are going about Florida right now and being passed, anything from anti-protest to anti-vote to anti-climate right, stuff. Right. And I'm I'm also holding the fact that often these sorts of policies are quote, solutions, right? Maybe they're not the right solutions, but they're brought up as solutions to certain mm, problems. What right. do you think these these policies um, are a response to? Or how do they come to be? Yeah, it's a great question, JP. And it's frustrating because there was a point you just made around solving problems. I'm a problem solver. Give me a problem. I don't want to ever say no to you. I want to try to solve it. And sometimes it's not my office that can do it. Sometimes it's a, it's a connection we make. Sometimes we have to find money to pay for something. Like, But we're always trying to solve problems. And I will tell you, the problems that my legislative office have faced for the last year have included the unemployment system, have included affordable housing renters issues, the need for more civil legal aid support to deal with these type of issues, vaccine access, um, equitable health care. And then you get into the nitty gritty about water quality. And, you know, those are the, the problems that we have faced. 
alongside systematic racism, which more and more Americans are understanding is a problem. Even if you're not directly impacted by it in the way others are, you do realize that your your equity is tied to the equity of those around you. So there's this collective understanding that we have to we have to do better to be better, right? And then you get to Tallahassee and it just feels like, my goodness, like everyone is creating pretend problems and solving those pretend problems. And it often seems like it's very politically driven, like it's not actually grounded in um, in legitimate concerns that are being brought to us. And right. whether it was House Bill 1 or, you know, the, the efforts to ban trans girls from playing in sports, um, of course, the most recent election bill, it's it's like windmills. You know what I mean? It's like these are not real these are not real problems, yeah. but you're creating the optics like they are. And and that's it's very frustrating. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand what uh, you're saying there. They're not really problems that are addressing the needs of people, right? Um, right, and so right. I think that, so in, with the recent legislation that's gone through with Florida, uh, a lot of people have, it's kind of opened people's eyes that the Florida legislature is even a thing. Um, a lot of people did not even realize <laughs> that, these, <laughs> that there are bills that go right. through at a state level. Um, and what... That shows me is that maybe a lot of people don't even realize how these things will affect their their lives, their daily lives. Um, and, you know, bills related to anti-protest and anti-clean energy. Could you maybe uh, talk a little bit more about how it these types of policies impact our daily lives for somebody who may not really be able to, to see that day to day? Oh, my gosh. I would love to because you are right. A lot of folks uh, watch what's happening in Congress. They watch what's happening in the White House, and and rightly so, because obviously really important policies come out of D.C. But at the end of the day, local government is where the biggest impact is had on your daily life. And that includes cities and counties alongside the state legislature. And I do think that some of these policy proposals have have create an environment where a lot of Floridians, especially young people, are are waking up to the state legislature and mm-hmm. the uh, attempted changes of bright futures, by the way, another good example of young people like coming out, organizing and stopping that bill. But um but yeah, so so every issue you can think of intersects with the state legislature. First of all, our constitutional responsibility is a pass a balanced budget. And this budget was huge. We had $10 billion from the Biden administration. It was its largest budget in Florida history at $101 billion. And it does prioritize um, uh, water projects. It, it unfortunately cuts housing dollars um, compared to what it should be, but it is more than what they usually raid out of the housing trust fund. But the budget is important because the, a budget details the values of a community, right? So what we're paying for gives you an in-depth look on what on what we value as people, mm-hmm. as 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 elected officials, as as representatives. Now, policy you mentioned, clean energy and environmental policies. So everything from regulation of pollutants to regulation of utility companies to renewable energy goals to preemption uh, to the potential of a carbon tax or piloting electric vehicle programs, like all of that comes down to Tallahassee. Right. And it just, you know, further demonstrates to how important it is that folks get connected to local government because Florida, though we're the sunshine state, I know y'all know this, we don't have any renewable energy goals. 
And like you mentioned in your introduction, the legislature has actually been making it harder for local governments to pursue renewable energy uh, production. And, and they're preempting what can happen at gas stations and energy production locally. And I mean, they're ignoring uh, racial justice from yeah. environmental justice lens. So, so yeah, a lot of a lot of important work that happens at a state level. We need more folks to be plugged in. Yeah, and I mean, I totally hear that. And it's like we're talking about things like racial justice and climate justice, which are very real problems that our state faces. And at the right. same time, we hear discussions about pretend problems that really don't affect us on our data. You know, yeah, they're just pretend problems that we start wars over that don't actually materially right. affect people's lives for any better. And sometimes they sometimes they damage a person's life, JP, right? Like sometimes they actually make your life worse. Right, exactly. And that's exactly what I think about when, um, you know, we hear of anti-protest legislation or anti-climate legislation. It's sort of, it, it seems to me like it's sometimes a response to just the movements and the public pressure that has been built over the past few years and decades to solve the overlooming crises of our time, especially in our state. And to hear that the solution isn't, you know, a progressive one, one that one that it actually like hears the mandate of the people and delivers on such such issues. It's one of repression. And I'm wondering, maybe from your perspective, why is the solution at the well, obviously not all of the Florida legislature because we got you on. <laughs> you're, you're part of that squad. Right. But why right. do some folks in the Florida legislature come to the conclusion that the way to solve these crises, whether it be racial justice or, or, or climate justice, is through a complete repression or right, backwardsness. Right, right. It's, so it's a few things, right? One, they want to distract. Like, I, I think at ignoring these problems and, and creating new pretend sensational problems and then slaying that problem is an easier path to take and one that gives you a lot of media hits. It gives you fundraising opportunities. Like it's super gross and slimy, but the reality is that there's almost more of an incentive to cause tension by the majority party than to actually solve problems. And so I, I mentioned earlier, like pretend problems. I would also call them boogeymen it's like we create boogeymen as as these enemies. They're, they're not they're not real enemies, but then they're the the lawmakers that are a part of this effort. Like they slay those enemies and then they celebrate a victory. And it's like you actually didn't even do anything, you know, or you actually made someone's life more difficult because of this agenda. So it's very frustrating. Again, knowing that legitimate problems are to be solved, we could collaborate on solving these problems, but instead the path you take is one that's easier and it's a distraction from actual real problems. But the other side that I kind of alluded to is this piece about money, because money is a money plays a big role in politics. And I will say that, especially when we're talking about sustainability and clean energy, the influence of utility companies in Florida, these are majority fossil fuel companies. That's the main source of their energy production. They are expanding into solar, but they're very influential in the legislative process. And I, I know for a fact that even energy efficiency programs 
are often stifled because utility companies don't want to subscribe to any mandated goals with efficiency, let alone with 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 clean energy development. So it's um, the role that money plays in politics is, is a really big problem, and it, it does stifle our efforts to push to be more ambitious. Because these companies, which in Florida, it's very regulated. There's five big investor-owned utilities, and we have municipalities and co-ops in the state. Um, Many go to the PSC as their regulatory body, the Public Service Commission. But even the PSC, there's always been a lot of reporting about how public service commissioners who are appointed by the governor and approved by the Senate, they make really big salaries, are often rubber stamp for the rubber stamps for the utility companies. Mm. And I asked what well, I, I once asked the question on the House floor over a bill that was going to expand some of the opportunities for utility companies to charge increased fees. This was two years ago. I asked the bill sponsor, has the PSC ever declined a rate increase? And he would not answer my question. <laughs> and so, you know, like that's a problem, right? Because this is also, like you mentioned, JP, an economic issue too, right? And right now we have way too many people facing utility disconnects who are still trying to get their unemployment or get back to work. And it all ties back to this, this really like uh, um, oppressive, um, uh, you know, have and have not scenario where folks that really don't have the means to defend themselves um, are also ones that are losing their power, right? So they're, they're even put in a place where they have even less support. So it's all tied together. And it's why we need advocates that center these conversations on directly impacted people and ensure that we're not just talking about rising sea level, but we're actually dealing with the, the crisis of climate action. And, and the fact that resiliency projects are great if you have a house, if you have a house by the water and now you're getting a tax break to put that house on stilts, that's great for you, the homeowner. But the reality is that for many folks who are experiencing the brunt of climate change, they're farm workers, they're, they're, they're outdoor workers in construction. They don't yeah, they can't afford a home, right? So it's it's super frustrating because I feel like the lack of focus on mitigation is also creating a dynamic where um, we are we're, we're not actually solving these problems long term. We're just solving them for a few people. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you just talked a little bit about renewable energy in general and going back to policies about protesting, I kind of want to steer the conversation now into how those two intersect. Um, Mm. Because I think it's really interesting what we've seen over the past month or so and how these are separate issues, but they're also one in the same. So I'd love- Right, right. Yeah, I'd I'd love if you could speak more about how policy about protesting and policy about energy and or climate intersect. Oh my goodness. And then maybe JP can add on some too. Yeah, it's such a great question. They're absolutely intertwined. Oh my gosh. Like so many of the the success made in the environmental movement came out of protest, mm-hmm. especially environmental justice. It was um, uh, Black advocates and organizers who, who used their bodies to protect their neighborhoods or to stop the illegal dumping of trash in the neighborhoods, uh, to demand for clean water. Think about the lead in our pipes and and, and in our state and in states across America. I mean, that is an issue of environmental injustice and it's it's acts of protest that get elected officials to do something about it. So the, the, the taking away the right to protest, making it more difficult to protest also makes it much more difficult to organize around these environmental 
injustices. And totally. it's not just with, you know, issues that that we even can predict, right? Some of these environmental problems, I mean, Piney Point, think about Piney Point and the gypsum stack leakage that almost like flooded a community. And we're still watching for the potential of fish kills in Tampa Bay because of this high phosphorus water that was poured into the bay. And we're already seeing algae blooms surface in other parts of the state. And, you know, protest has lifted up awareness on these issues and has held elected officials accountable to the irresponsibility and neglect of preventing this from happening. And so you take away that right to protest or make it harder to protest, then then elected officials will not be held accountable for many of their actions. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's all absolutely right. And it's it's you know, when you get to the fundamental level of it, it's like, what are what are protests used for? They're a tool for people who are often oppressed to gain a voice, to echo a message of urgency and visibility that is otherwise not seen. Right. 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 It's a it's it's voices that aren't often included in decision making bodies. And so when you criminalize them, you're essentially criminalizing or, or, or further oppressing people. And when we talk about, you know, these two waves of, of policy, anti-protest and anti-climate policy, to me, the context under which they're being brought up right now is in direct response to the movements that have won over the public and not only the past year, but for decades. Right, um, right. We saw a surge of activism, not only amongst those that participate in activism, but the general public over this summer in defense of black lives. In response to that, we're seeing visible uh, crackdowns on that form of protests, right? And at the same time, we're seeing legislation that is barring communities of what kind of power they will use and what kind of both power in like electricity wise and also power that the one that lies within community. And to me, those things are very interlinked. Why? Because you're fundamentally asking the question, what voices matter? So when you're taking away the right for someone to protest or criminalizing that and, and subjecting it to penalty, very harsh penalty, you're saying you're, you're essentially quieting someone. You're putting a muzzle on someone. And at the same time, you know, Anna, you spoke about environmental movements or movements against environmental injustice, it is no secret that a lot of the pollutant energy that we have in our country today often resides, those plants reside very close mm, right. to black communities and disenfranchised communities. Right, so when we talk about a just and clean transition to a green economy and a green way of life, we're talking about democratizing resources, those that the earth gives us, in order to not only breathe easier, but also empower our communities over what rights they have, what say they have in the sort of power that rules over them. So the way that these two forms of legislation are incredibly interlinked for me, it strips people away from their right to self-determination, for their right to know what's best for their community. And it's really a slap in the face. Um, so I'd say that's that those are several ways in which they're pretty interlinked for me. 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's, you know, it's so awesome getting to hear these viewpoints from both the representative and an organizer. And Anna, as a representative, you know, your job is to represent the voices of Floridians. And I feel like that helps me pose this next, this top, this next topic really well, which is, you know, <laughs> many Americans outside of Florida, particularly in like the North and the West, they, they see Florida as this place where like the most backwards things happen and the Florida man headlines and all of that. And I, I remember seeing when um, these anti-climate, anti-protest-like uh, policies were going by. Um, it was covered by a lot of outlets, obviously like CNN and Vice. And, and I saw people commenting things like, well, what do you expect? It's Florida. And so as a representative, you know. <laughs> My <I'm>, heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, as a Floridian, it, same. <laughs> My heart, yeah. <laughs> like, do you feel like these types of policies actually represent the needs and the wants of Floridians properly? And how do you, you know, based off that, how do you think we can use like this national attention to maybe flip that perspective? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, Gabby. It's just, no, it's so heartbreaking because it's not, it's not reflective of who we are. You know, I am born and raised in this, in this sweet state and in this sweet town. And I honestly, it's very frustrating because being a, a woman of color, I get, um, I, I am the brunt of a lot of xenophobic and misogynistic and just racist rhetoric, right? Even if I don't do anything, I get attacked and people tell me to leave Florida. And I read those type of comments on social media and it's just, my 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 gut reaction is, this is my home. I'm not going to leave. Like, this mm-hmm. is my home. And my my voice, my vote, my work it's just as valid as anyone else's. And the fact that you just are telling me to go home because uh, you don't like my political perspective on something is so disrespectful, but completely ignores the value of my contributions and the value of any person's contributions here in this state. And so I continue to emphasize the fact that Florida has very close elections, which means that no one has a mandate to pursue their own agenda without any regard for those around them, right? Like we really, we really should feel incentivized to listen to one another and find those areas of commonality because the state is diverse enough for that to be necessary. But I think right. what's frustrating is that um, when pe- when folks don't vote, then you are giving up your power. And then of course you have things like gerrymandering and redistricting is coming up. So folks need to continue to watch these watch these seats be drawn because this is unfortunately a moment where seats are often drawn to benefit one party over the other, which makes it even harder to get that equity and parity in representation. But, but, but remember that if you don't vote, you are giving up your power to able to, to, to decide who represents you in these places of decision-making. And then even after you vote, you still got to find ways to get involved. And of course, this also is challenging for folks with different economic levels and folks with different language barriers. So as I would argue that as advocates, as policymakers, we need to reduce those barriers as much as possible ourselves. 
But if every person participates in our democracy, it's going to be a healthier democracy with, with policies that actually reflect what people need and what people are asking for versus a political culture war agenda. Um, and that's my vision for the state. And that's why I keep doing this work. That's why I'm, I'm focused on the state house. That's why I have so much hope because I, I, I look at the eyes of the people that I serve and I hear their voices over the phone or I see their faces over Zoom. And it's like, hmm. these are beautiful people. And... And they just want to live a happy, wholehearted life. They just want to pay their bills on time. They just want to care for their families. And and and, and Floridians are hardworking people that care about each other. But we just have to have the political courage to reflect that same everyday strength. And that mm. is what I'm fighting for every single day. Yeah, I hear that 100%. And I think it's such a strange take, too. It's... it's just it's baffling to me really like I remember it's very resonant because it's not only even with Florida um I remember you know only a few months ago um when there was that big climate-induced freeze in Texas and there were loads of um blackouts and people were suffering there was some discourse by really really just like like people with large platforms saying literally saying Enjoy your blackouts, Texas. You voted for them. And I could not believe what I was hearing. Number one, the people who are subjected to such austere pain due to bad policy that's been influenced by money and industry do not deserve the pain that they're being subjected to, period. I don't know if that's so hard to understand for some people, but like, yes, like they do not deserve that. And second of all, I don't think we should characterize problems of this magnitude as being, you know, or, or framing the accountability to people who are hurting from them. Um, it's it's really a resin case all around. And so when I think of Florida, I'm, you know, I'm like completely on board with what Anna said, right? We have amazing people here. We have people who really do just want the best for themselves and and for their communities. And that is not being reflected at the level of power. And that's where the problem is. The problem doesn't reside with people being too backwards to understand what is in their best self-interest. It has to do with, you know, decision makers listening more to profit margins rather than their own constituents. And then when we talk about voting and stuff like that, it's important to have an invigorated and healthy democracy where everyone can participate instead of a democracy where some votes matter more than others, where some voices matter more than others. And we can't also ignore the litany and array of anti-voter uh, legislation that's going on too. So I, I, I hear that like the, the, the problems that surround our state and the South in general are incredibly complex. And loads of the crises we have are due to some bad decision makers that don't have the best interests of the people at hand, but the people are never to blame for the crises that they find themselves in. And I am so on board with fighting, uh, with you on that, Anna. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Thanks, JP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, you guys said it. <laughs> um, I literally could not, I could not resonate more with everything that was said. And um, 
I think a good way to kind of wrap up everything that was said about Florida and everything we're seeing happen uh, at a statewide level is how can Floridians help? You know, like how can Floridians be more engaged with what happens in Tallahassee? Clearly, we've seen that a lot of people aren't. And I think it's time that we learn more to be uh, how to be more engaged. Right. So. Anna, um, please, like, how could Floridians be more engaged with your work, with what goes on in the Florida legislature, and just be more civically in it at a state level? I love it. I mean, the first thing that folks need to do is find out who your elected officials are at a state level. So you can go to myfloridahouse.gov, flsent.gov, put in your address, identify these lawmakers, follow them on social media, keep tabs on us. You want to be engaged in the process as much as possible. And of course, if folks want to keep in touch with us and our work, we're on social media at Anna for Florida, all spelled out with two ends at Anna for Florida on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Keep in touch. We have a lot of good work coming up. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anna. You're the best. Thank you again for coming on and talking to us. And I hope you have an incredible rest of your day. Thanks so much. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. And that's a perfect spot to end this episode. Thank you so much, Representative Eskamani, for joining us today. You just listened to House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast powered by the Clio Institute. You can find us on Instagram at House on Fire Podcast, Twitter at House on Fire Pod, and listen to our show on all your favorite platforms for podcasts.